Welcome to Local Bites, the podcast of the International Society for Ecology and Culture, dedicated to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. In this show, we'll be featuring critical voices and inspiring examples from the global movement for localization. Welcome to Local Bites, tracking the rise of localist movements and ideas from around the world. I'm Brian Emerson. Today's topic, why local ownership matters. Governments around the world have adopted a whole suite of policies that favor large, non-local businesses, infrastructure developments, tax incentives, lax regulations, corporate-friendly free trade agreements, and lavish subsidies, all with the aim of creating so-called good business climates that make their regions more attractive to global corporations. This strategy is seen as the best way to grow a region's economy, tackle unemployment, and generate tax revenues for government services. It's no surprise, then, that today, most sectors of the economy are dominated not by a diversity of small local businesses anchored to their communities, but by a few mega-corporations, big-box retail stores like Walmart and Tesco, transnational food corporations like McDonald's and Coca-Cola, seed and agribusiness companies like Monsanto, Cargo, online giants like Amazon, as well as truly colossal financial institutions, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, you get the idea. Although corporate-friendly policies have been undertaken in the name of job creation and economic progress, growing evidence suggests that consolidated ownership in the hands of a few global corporations actually undermines local economies. It leads to greater unemployment, stagnant wages, worsening inequality, and even increases the risk of large-scale economic crisis. Many people are also concerned that concentrated economic power threatens democracy itself. All of this is leading a growing chorus of economic analysts to call for an alternative model, one that promotes more decentralized ownership and control over the economy, and that prioritizes local production for local needs. Advocates of this alternative model point to research showing how relocalizing economic activity can actually generate multiple social, economic, and environmental benefits. So why does local ownership matter? To help us answer this question, we'll be speaking with local economy expert Stacy Mitchell. Stacy Mitchell works for the U.S.-based Institute for Local Self-Reliance, where she directs the Community Scaled Economy Initiative. Mitchell is a researcher and analyst who advises business groups, grassroots organizations, and policymakers, helping them design strategies to curb economic consolidation and strengthen community-rooted enterprises. Her work has appeared in various publications, including Business Week, Salon, The Nation, and Grist. She is also author of the book The Big Box Swindle, The True Cost of Mega Retailers and the Fight for America's Independent Businesses. Stacy Mitchell, welcome to Local Bites. It's great to be with you. Stacy. You've spent your career promoting the benefits of local business and banking on the one hand, and on the other, warning against the negative impacts of economic development policies that seem to promote consolidation by favoring large global retailers like Walmart at the expense of small local businesses. You've clearly spent a lot of time thinking about and advocating for a pro-local economic agenda. So to begin our conversation, I wonder if you could give our listeners a succinct overview of the benefits of local business ownership and community-scaled financial institutions like community banks and credit unions. We'll talk about some of the specific evidence you've compiled in a moment, but to start, broadly speaking, why does local ownership matter? 
I, I think one of the most important reasons is to uh, is to democratize ownership of the economy and to bring that decision making, which which now is so concentrated in the hands of a few big businesses, a few big banks, uh, a few big uh, you know agro agro businesses. We need to bring that that control um, back out to people, to communities, to the local level, so that we all have an ability to shape our own future and to make decisions uh, about the shape of the economy. Economy that will ultimately nurture our community uh, and nurture the environment. Um, and I will also just add that that you know we know that that shifting more in the direction of local businesses, um, smaller scale production, local banking, um, those kinds of strategies lead to more jobs and better paying jobs and to a, a richer variety of more um, meaningful employment. And we know as well that local businesses help to create, uh, help to generate a lot of social capital and build really strong um, networks of, of connection among people that has a variety of benefits. Okay, so let's talk about some of the evidence behind these claims. Could you share with us some of the key studies demonstrating the benefits of local ownership and community banking? Maybe you could also talk about some of the research that has looked at the impact of large retail chains like Walmart on local communities and economies. Sure. Well, there are quite a few. You know, we have a library on our site called uh, Key Studies on on Big Box Retail and Independent Business that really walks through a lot of this. Uh, and also in the banking section of our site, we've got uh, a lot of graphs and explanatory stuff that walks through you know, what, what we know about the benefits of community banks. Um, some of the things that I think are real highlights uh, in terms of the studies that are out there, um, there have been a number of studies that have looked at, you know, what happens to dollars that you spend uh, in a locally owned business versus dollars that you spend at a national chain or on Amazon. Uh, and what they find is that those dollars, when they go into a local business, they create far greater um, economic benefits in your local area and they support more jobs. Uh, and the reason is that local businesses tend to buy a lot of goods and services locally. So they're getting their printing done at the local print shop. They're sourcing more of what they carry from local producers. They're banking at the local bank. You know, so those dollars circulate and they support a whole web of economic activity locally. Whereas if you buy something on Amazon or at Target, you know, the money more or less just evaporates. It leaves the local area uh, and doesn't produce any of those secondary benefits. So that's one of the more interesting data points out there. We also, you know, we and, and others have done a lot of research on the jobs argument. And one of the things that you hear, you know, whenever a, a big company uh, wants to open a new facility, when you know, Amazon wants to build a warehouse in some state or Walmart wants to open a store, one of the things you hear is, well, this is going to create jobs. But in fact, the research consistently shows that those projects actually eliminate more jobs than they create. We know, for example, in the case of Amazon, for every $10 million in retail sales that they do, they're creating about 14 jobs. Every $10 million in retail sales that goes into locally owned brick and mortar businesses creates uh, about 50 jobs. So, you know, as uh, you know, as Amazon grows and takes over more of the market, what we're actually seeing is is a lot a net loss of jobs, not a gain, and that's true for a lot of these big businesses. And I would also note, in the context of, of community banking, which is kind of a unique or a uniquely important sector of the economy, in the sense that you know the financial system really 
has the, the, the shape and structure of your financial system really determines a lot about the shape and structure of the rest of your economy. Because if you have, as we do, more and more of your banking assets held by these giant banks like Bank of America, JP Morgan Chase, those giant banks primarily like to use your money to speculate on Wall Street, to finance big corporations and that kind of thing. And so that's the kind of economy you get if big banks are the dominant form. Um, what our research has found is that community banks do a lot more lending to small businesses, a lot more lending uh, that is productive, that really supports the development of community assets. And so that's one of the, the you know, Community banks are like a different sort of animal than big banks in terms of what the business model is and how much they contribute. So I think that evidence is really compelling as well. So beyond the economic impacts, I've also seen studies that have found broader social, environmental, and even civic benefits associated with higher levels of small, locally owned businesses. These more holistic assessments are quite important and really strengthen the case for economic localization. Could you talk about some of the evidence linking higher levels of local ownership with broader social and environmental benefits? Yeah, it's a really good point. There have been a number of studies now done by sociologists, primarily some economists who have looked at comparing, you know, communities where a, a larger share of the economy is held by small locally owned businesses versus communities where more of the economy is in the hands of big absentee corporations. And what they find is, you know, all, all else being equal, communities that are have the small business model for their economy are much healthier. Um, they're much uh, stronger um, in terms of the social ties and the levels of civic participation. People who live in communities with lots of small businesses tend to belong to neighborhood organizations in greater numbers. They tend to participate in things like going to school board meetings and city council meetings. And they, they actually vote more often uh, than people who live in communities that are really dominated by big business. You know, there, there are a, a number of reasons why that, that is probably the case. I mean, some of it is the kinds of, of environments that locally owned businesses create. You know, if you're, if, if the way that you run your errands, you know, and I mean, if you think about it, running your errands is a, is a big part of how you experience your community. It's a big part of how you experience your local economy. And if running your errands means, you know, going into a walkable business district where you're going from locally owned store to locally owned store where um, the owners maybe know you by name, where you're running into your neighbors and having happenstance kinds of conversations uh, about things that are going on in the neighborhood or the community. It's a much more social and a much more interactive way to engage with your local economy than if you are getting into your car and driving to a big box store um, which, you know, the, the, the chances of running into someone you know are much lower, studies have found there, um, and where the environment really is not very conducive to those kinds of, that kind of casual loitering and, and chit-chat that you find happening, um, you know, while you're waiting in line at the bakery or, you know, walking down the sidewalk. So there's a, those different environments are really incredibly powerful. I also think, um, you know, that the, the actual ownership, it gives um, you know, ha having control of your economy locally uh, gives communities, it means that they have the resources at their own disposal and the capacity to address their own problems in a way that a community that's dependent on outside corporations doesn't. 
And one of the most interesting studies in this whole body of research uh, is a study that found that communities that are have more local businesses um, are actually physically healthier. The population is, is healthier physically, and they have a lower mortality rate. Um, you're actually less, you know, your, your mortality rate is lower if you belong to a community with a strong local economy. And the authors uh, of that study, which was in the Cambridge Journal of Regions, the authors there said, you know, we think the connection is something that they described as collective efficacy, which was basically the capacity of people to um, to act together for their own mutual benefit. And local ownership was something that really gave them the capacity to address their own problems. You know, in the case of public health, it might be the kinds of communities that are setting up bike paths or creating space for farmers markets. It's the communities that work well, that come together to solve problems. And we don't see that the more and more corporations take over. It really just destroys that civic capital. I'd like to talk about sustainability issues as well. Are there any environmental benefits that might flow from higher levels of local ownership? We've done a lot of research on the environmental consequences of the opposite, with the environmental consequences of, of Walmart, for example, and the enormous amounts of fossil fuel involved in that particular business model. When you've got a far-flung system of production and distribution that's moving goods around the world, often very shoddily produced goods that go quite quickly from a factory to a landfill because they don't last very long, and where customers are, are you know, having to drive, you know, the amount of, of driving that we do for shopping has grown dramatically. And if you look at that acceleration, if you look at that line, if you graph it, it goes really hand in hand with the growth of this big box retail model. So, you know, I think to begin to really solve that problem, we've got to we've got to go back to smaller scale locally owned businesses that are embedded in communities and in neighborhoods where it's possible to walk or maybe it's a short drive or public transit to get to a business and where you've got a business that because of its local ownership, it has some flexibility about sourcing. It can actually source goods to the extent that they're available from the local economy, from the local region. Um, it's a very different model. And I would also add, I think it's a really critical when we think about how do we how do we build a, an economy that is actually compatible with our need to reduce our impact on the climate. One of the biggest issues and one of the biggest obstacles is is really political. You know, it's the ability of big companies to own Congress and to block legislation that would, that, you know, to act on on the climate crisis. And local businesses don't don't game the the political process in the same way. You know, because you know one of the things that's so important about local ownership is that it really it complicates business decision making in socially beneficial ways. Which is to say that if you're a local owner of a business, you're going to think twice about dumping toxics into the local waterway because that's the same water system that supplies your drinking water. You know, if there's a referendum on whether to lower taxes on businesses, um, you have to, to weigh, you know, the benefit maybe to your bottom line against the fact that it's your kids who go to the schools who are going to see their budgets cut as a result of that. So, you know, it's a different kind of decision making and one where community needs and environmental needs are more aligned than they are with big corporations. Okay, so help me understand. If small local businesses and community banks are so beneficial, what's holding them back? Why do so many sectors of the economy seem to be dominated by a few large, often global corporations? Is it because they're more efficient? What's going on here? They have rigged the game. We tend to think, oh, well, big companies are taking over because they're more efficient and they're better at what they do and they're just, they're, they're out competing. Um, and that's 
not really the case. The reason that they're that they're gaining that they have gained so much ground is because they've used their political power to rig public policy in their favor. There's so many examples of this, and it's at all levels of government. I mean, you can see it in things like the Farm Bill, where we we spend huge piles of money subsidizing farms, and over 80% of those dollars go to the largest 10% of farms in the country. So there's a reason, you know, and those are farms that are producing, you know, soy and corn for uh, processed foods. Uh, so there's a reason processed foods are cheaper. Uh, it's because we're subsidizing it, and we're subsidizing the big farms, um, and, 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 and the small-scale farms don't get anything. Uh, you can look at the banking system, where, you know, we made a series of decisions in the 1990s uh, where we went from a banking system that was very functional, heavily uh, oriented around community banks, very stable, worked well for decades, about 50 years we had this system, and we dismantled it in the 1990s at the behest of these global financial institutions, creating, you know, shifting the dynamics of banking regulation in such a way that it allowed the big guys to come in and take over the market. And, you know, even, even at, in the aftermath of our financial crisis, the kinds of policies and the kinds of approaches we took to dealing with that, you know, not only did we fail to address the problem, but the kinds of regulations and stuff that we began to put in place did more favors for big banks and, and further undermined community banks. And we can see it in the retail sector. We can see it in the in the millions and millions of dollars in development subsidies that are given to Amazon warehouses and Walmart stores. I mean, if you're a local like hardware store owner and you go down to your city council and you're like, well, I'm thinking about, you know, expanding, maybe open a second location. You know, can I have a five hundred thousand dollar tax break? And you'll be laughed out of the room and they will say to you. This is a free market. You got to go out there and compete, right? And meanwhile, you know, their biggest competitors are being subsidized. So this is, you know, this is through throughout our public policy, you know, our public policy is 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 really tilted the playing field. Um and that's, you know, what we need to to address if we're going to shift the dynamic. You've sort of touched on some of this, but I want to push back a little bit just to be the devil's advocate. Some critics might say that small local businesses are, are quite wonderful, but they'll never be adequate in terms of producing the things we need and want from a modern economy. They can't solve our unemployment crisis because they don't employ enough people. They're inefficient because they can't accomplish certain economies of scale and so on. In short, they would argue that despite the benefits of small local businesses, economic development strategies should still focus on attracting and retaining large non-local businesses. How would you respond to those critics? I think that that's a kind of worldview that reigns large, and it's commonly assumed to be true. But when you start getting into the specifics of it, um, it, you know, it starts to become a lot murkier. I mean, take banks, for example. There's a a lot of of research by economists, you know, studies that have been done, peer-reviewed journal articles, and and the whole bit uh, that consistently show that smaller banks are more efficient, that they provide services and provide loans at lower, uh, you know, at lower uh, operating costs than the big banks do. They also incidentally charge lower fees um, and provide better interest rates. So as a consumer, you're much better off with a community bank. And as I said earlier, they do a much better job of actually doing the kinds of productive lending that drives job growth. So in the case of banks, I mean, the data is really overwhelming. And and the data also shows that as as banks get bigger, there are diseconomies of scale. So these giant global banks are actually, because they're so top-heavy with bureaucracy, that they're actually very uh, costly to operate. Uh, and again, the reason they're big is because of a public policy system that favors them, not because they're, they're actually better. 
you know, in the case of, of, you know, looking at the retail sector and services and so on, you know, when you begin to look at the kinds of economic outcomes that local businesses produce uh, in terms of job creation, uh, the multiplier benefit, higher uh, income growth has been associated with having a larger number of small businesses. Um, we're seeing better economic outcomes from that kind of an approach to economic development than one that goes out and chases down uh, a big company from away. So, I, you know, I, I think that the, the data and the empirical evidence really is not there. And, you know, and I think you, if you begin to go sector by sector in the economy, you see that, you know, consistently. In the, in the case of, of farms, for example, the amount of food produced per acre is much greater for small farms than it is for big farms. So I think really the question is, how are we measuring efficiency? And a lot of the ways that we have tended to measure efficiency have been about, well, you know, how much profits can we extract? Or, yeah, it's efficient, but we're not really accounting for the environmental and social costs that are embedded in that, which we all pay whether we know it or not. You know, so we've had these kind of ways of, of talking about efficiency that ignore a lot of the actual reality on the ground. And I think if once we begin to shift that and think in a more holistic way about economic outcomes, there's no question that small scale local businesses win across uh, you know, a lot of sectors of the economy. It's not to say that there are not some sectors where you know, a certain level of scale and size is required. I mean, uh, you know, when it comes to the manufacture of certain kinds of goods and things like that, you know, it's not something that's going to be done by a 10-person business. So there's a nuance there, and it's not black and white, but our message really is that we have been going so rapidly in the direction of big and consolidated and absentee ownership. We have just been driving so hard in that direction, and the evidence for doing that is really not there, and we need to steer the ship back or in the direction of a community-scaled economy. I want to ask you a question about strategy. There are some people who support local sustainable food or renewable energy who promote the greening of large corporations as the best way to expand the local food economy or reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I've seen campaigns dedicated to getting giant corporations like Walmart to sell local food, put solar panels on the rooftops, and sell fairly traded products. The argument is that because of the vast market share these firms control, it's quicker, more practical, and more efficient to green corporate practices rather than replacing these corporations with smaller, more democratic local alternatives. Do you think this is a good strategy? Well, just as a little bit of background, you know, Walmart barely sold any groceries at all 15, 20 years ago. So they have come out of really nowhere in the space of a very short period of time, have grown to capture one out of every $4 that Americans spend on groceries. It's astonishing. We've never had a grocery chain at a national scale like that so dominant, uh, controlling a quarter of our entire food system. And there are um, over 40 metro metro areas where Walmart now has 50% grocery market share. And the, the trajectory of its growth is, is incredible. So we began to, you know, you, it's not, you don't have to go very far out on the path that it's on to see it control 50% of the U.S. food system. I think that's pretty scary. And Walmart is very clever about how they talk about what they're doing supposedly on the environment and what they're doing with regard to local food. But when you look closer and you dig in deeper, what you find is what they're saying and what the reality is are very different things. You know, in the case of local food, 
Walmart actually, you know, is, is among the retailers that, that source uh, some, some of the lowest percentages of local food. I mean, they're out there saying, oh, we're going to grow this, or we're going to do that, and so on and so forth. But the reality of what they actually sell um, is that their share is quite low. Um, and the other thing is that what they're talking about when they talk about local, um, you know, they define local food as grown within the same state. So a lot of when you see them out there saying, we're going to up the amount of local food that our stores sell, what they're really doing is that they're unrolling super centers, uh, stores at a great pace in states like Texas and California, where you have fairly large scale farms and they're sourcing, you know, industrial produce from those farms. And because it's in the same state, they're calling it local and they're using those figures to bump up their national numbers. You know, it's not that there aren't occasions where there are some small farms who've, who've gotten deals from, from Walmart and been able to sell their produce that way and had some benefit. It's not that that doesn't ever occur. But but the bigger picture here is that Walmart is going out there talking local food, not doing a whole lot in reality, and using the talk about local food in order to grow. And that's the part where I think food activists have to take a stand, because do we really need a company that controls more than 25 percent of the U.S. food system? And what are the long-term implications of that for, you know, small-scale agriculture, for sustainability, for democracy? I mean, Walmart's takeover of the food system thus far has already had, uh, you know, this intense effect in terms of consolidation up the food chain. So what we've seen is that meat packers and, and dairy companies and processors of all kinds have merged in order to try to bulk up because they're scared of, of being a supplier to Walmart and not, you know, having enough heft to hold their own in that relationship. So they have been this whole slew of mergers that Walmart has triggered. And then those companies, as they've gotten bigger, have been able to use their might to push down prices that go to farmers and to push down wages that are paid to food workers. So Walmart's effect on the food system has been this squeezing of, of workers, squeezing of farmers, uh, and squeezing of local economies. And so, you know, going down the path of saying, well, Walmart's doing something good in terms of local food is a very slippery slope to endorsing that company being able to continue to grow and to take over more of this, uh, more of our food system. Um, in 2012, you delivered a TEDx talk that I really urge all of our listeners to watch. The title of your talk was Why We Can't Shop Our Way to a Better Economy. What were you trying to convey with that title? We've seen this great emergence of a, of a kind of grassroots movement for local economy. In the last 10 years, we've seen uh, local first campaigns and buy local initiatives take root all across the country. Um, there are growing numbers of independent businesses that are becoming part of those initiatives. There's a lot of activity that's happening that's really exciting. And it's we, we've even begun to see a little bit of an uptick you know, in some of these sectors, we've got growing numbers of small-scale farms for the first time in 50 years. Instead of small farms being on the decline, they're actually going up in numbers. We've added um, uh, over 500 new independent bookstores in this country uh, in the last five years. The number of, of small neighborhood grocers is on the rise. Um, more people uh, have, sh have moved their accounts to, uh, from big banks to local credit unions. There's a lot of exciting stuff happening, and there's a real sense that there's, there's a public consciousness and, and shift that's happening out there. However, as exciting as all of that is, my analysis is that it's very unlikely that we're going to shift the larger dynamic with this consumer-focused approach on its own. 
Uh, it's been great in terms of being a, you know, a, a mobilization and education tool and a way, a way to engage people. Um, but we can't change the system by trying to marshal our collective power as consumers because our power as consumers is, is very weak and very limited. Um, what we really need to do is change the rules. We really need to change those policies that I talked about earlier. And that means that we've got to exercise our citizen muscle. It means we have to come together as citizens uh, to change the way government works and the way public policy works. And so that was the, the primary message of the talk. Well, maybe to elaborate a bit, you talked about where our taxpayer money goes and what mm -hmm. kind of businesses it supports and some other policies. Could you lay out the components of a localist policy agenda? What would your platform look like? Sure, absolutely. And, and we're working uh, right now on this localist policy agenda and bringing other organizations and people together uh, really around pushing this shared narrative and this uh, shared platform. Um, some of the components of that, you know, I mean, you can look at the food system and you can say, you know, we really ought to overhaul the farm bill and have the farm bill be about how do we produce healthy food that nourishes communities. And I think if you approach it from that angle, you begin to think about uh, a public policy framework that is much more supportive of community-scaled agriculture. Um, in terms of the banking sector, there are, you know, in some ways, the, the answers there are quite simple because from the Great Depression until uh, the late 1980s, you know, we really had a policy framework in place that ensured that community banks and credit unions were the mainstay of our financial system. You know, we had things that limited the ability of, of banks to branch across state lines. You know, um, there were there were some restrictions around that. Uh, we limited the ability of banks to cross the line between you know regular banking and investment banking. You know, those kinds of policies. Uh, we really need to go just go back to that framework. Um, and then there are things. You know, that's at a federal level. There are things that states I think can do in the interim on the on the financial front. Um, things like uh, looking at the Bank of North Dakota. Model, which has been, you know, North Dakota has a very different banking system than the rest of the country, uh, a banking system where community banks are very prevalent, where there's a lot of small business lending, and it's mainly because they have this very interesting public bank that, that helps support uh, that local banking system. Um, in the case of the retail sector, which is you know, a big sector of our economy and, and is very determinative because um, retail is really the, the window into manufacturing. And so the way that your retail sector is, is structured has a lot to do with what kinds of, of manufactured goods make it onto store shelves. So it's a really a pivotal sector of our economy. There, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, we need to resurrect antitrust law. We need to look at the ways that companies like Walmart and Amazon are exercising their market power to undermine competition. And we need to use uh, local land use and economic development policy much more aggressively you know, we've worked with some cities and, and, and one state to put in place uh, economic impact review laws that basically say, look, you want to open a store here, you know, big store, uh, you have to go undergo an economic impact analysis. We're going to look at how that, you know, yeah, you're going to create some jobs, but how many jobs are you going to eliminate? What's going to be the impact on small businesses? What's going to be the impact on the circulation of dollars? And, and what we've seen in the places that have those policies is that more and more of those kinds of developments are turned down because once people actually have the facts about the impacts, uh, it really changes uh, the decision.
Um, so those are just it gives gives you a little bit of a flavor, but there's there's, there's a lot out there I think that is a, is an opportunity for reform and restructuring if we think about policy with a different framework and a different set of a set of goals. And the opportunities, you know, there there are some big federal issues obviously, but there are also a lot of opportunities at the local and state level that I think are within our grasp and can become the beginnings of an organizing and, and movement building strategy. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about local and federal policy changes. Have you been following the developments around the two new large uh, global trade agreements, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Free Trade Agreement, uh, both very similar to NAFTA? And if so, how do you think these kind of treaties, uh, these trade deals, could impact local economies, or will they? They, they certainly matter. Um... We work with a lot of communities to you know, implement local policies to support the local economy, and some of those policies are potentially threatened by these kinds of trade agreements. You know, for example, the ability of local government to give preferences uh, when it's doing for, for procurement for purchasing to local businesses. So, for example, if the, if the schools want to focus on you know, getting more of their food from local farms, that kind of thing could potentially be overturned by some of these trade agreements. Uh, it gets complicated quickly, but it's definitely an area of concern for us. So you've been tracking the local economy movement for many years. Could you highlight a few specific examples of what you consider the most promising pro-local initiatives? Um, well, the growth of the local economy movement has been quite dramatic in the last few years. Um, you know, I, I, we've seen uh, independent business alliances and, and local first groups take root in over 150 cities and now count about 40,000 independent businesses as members. And those are initiatives that are you know, working directly on uh, at the local level on how to rebuild local economies and how to shift public support to local businesses. And we know that those initiatives have are making a difference. You know, um, um, we at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance just did a uh, national survey of 2,600 independent business owners across the country. And, you know, overwhelmingly, the ones in communities with those kinds of initiatives said, you know, it was absolutely helping their business. And they cited a lot of very specific benefits, including new customers and healthier um, uh, sales and, and, and revenue. Um, so that's, you know, that's been exciting. And this is obviously something that is more and more on people's minds. We're, we're seeing other organizations, I think, that are coming around to this way of thinking and more and more you know, activity in this in this whole area. So this this is um, it's a good place to be versus, say, five or 10 years ago. And uh, how can listeners get involved? Well, uh, for people who want more detail on any of the kinds of things that I talked about, both in terms of the studies and the research, as well as the policy approaches, our website is ilsr.org, you know, Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We have a rules library, which is a library of model policies with supporting research. And then, you know, I think, um, you know, often a good place to start is within your own community and conversations with your neighbors and with existing community organizations that have, you know, some, some organizational infrastructure um, that you can begin to build on. You know, certainly if you're, um, you know, get, getting involved in forming an independent business alliance can be a great thing for, for shifting the direction uh, in your community. And then there are lots of, of state and regional organizations that are working on these issues. So I would definitely say you know, be looking, looking for those organizations and getting, uh, getting involved in what they're doing. Well, Stacey Mitchell, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. 
Yeah, it's been great talking with you. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Local Bites, a podcast series from the International Society for Ecology and Culture, dedicated to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. Join us next time for another episode of Local Bites.